Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. In this episode of Right Medicine, we are talking about root analysis. I'm here with Greg Salinas, PhD, President of CE Outcomes. Greg shares his insights from his current research in the medical education field and his latest approach to needs assessment research. Root cause analysis seeks to identify the root cause for clinical practice and professional performance gaps. We explore how root analysis is defined, what's involved in the process, its benefits for needs assessment research, and how to approach it. Join us. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine. I'm Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Greg Salinas, president of CE Outcomes LLC. And we're here to talk about root cause analysis. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Well, let's start with if you could share with listeners who you are and what kind of work you do. Sure. So Alex already introduced me. My name's Greg. Um, (laughs) So what we do in in, in what our our company does is we really uh, work on all aspects of educational research, specifically in the medical education side of things. So whether that's understanding the needs and the gaps in a particular target audience and consulting with some groups to help them understand their learners and their target audience versus understanding the outcomes of a particular educational uh, activity and intervention. So, so really trying to go the whole spectrum of educational analysis. We don't do education ourselves. We're not accredited. We really focus specifically on the research and understanding the formative and the summative analysis of putting together an educational program. And so how did you land in this world? Yeah, that's always a great question, right? Because uh, no one, no one ever really uh, gets a degree in, in outcomes research, but at least in this side of things. So I um, have a doctorate in molecular pharmacology. I work in academia for a little while after my degree in pure bench science research. My postdoc stuff was on the the molecular aspects of depression and bipolar disease. And then after a few years of that, decided maybe the academic world isn't for me. The hours were getting longer, you know, starting to have a family. It was time to to look for other things. And and, uh, there was a company that I started working for that was uh, involved in educational research. I didn't really know too much about that at the time. I got started as an analyst there and have kind of worked my way up. And that was about 14 years ago. Uh, so uh, I've been doing this quite a while since then. Yeah, and we've kind of worked together a little bit, at least over the last decade. So yes. <laughs> it's certainly been a long time. And I know you talked about, you know, your 
work really focuses across the spectrum of educational research from needs assessments to outcomes. Can you talk just a little bit about first, because you have a very unique approach to needs assessments. So can you talk a little bit about that approach to needs assessments and a little bit about the outcomes evaluation work that you typically undertake? Yeah, that's right. And I think when, when people think about needs assessments, it's often like, okay, well, let's go to the literature, right? Let's, let's find out what's, what, what is there already known about a specific thing. And, and what we have found, at least in the last 10, 20 years or so at, at our company is that it's often the questions that you want to know most aren't in the literature. And you have to go in and do your own primary uh, analysis. You have to find your own data. You have to really identify what is the needs in that specific target audience. Because even sometimes you find a great paper. Oh, okay. Well, it was done on one hospital, maybe in Canada, you know, in this area. And well, you know, how relevant is that to my target audience? So we do a lot of direct outreach to clinicians, whether it's community clinicians, academic clinicians. Um, We try to understand that specific target audience. We like to use a mixed methods approach, whether it's using interviews, using maybe nominal group technique, um, using uh, case vignette surveys to really try to understand not only what the gaps are, but just how, how they're practicing and even the attitudes and, and some of the barriers and challenges around that, which is, is a very similar approach as we have in our outcomes assessment, too, is because, uh, you know, our outcomes aren't really focused on your, your pre-post data. We, we work with groups if they want to go maybe a little bit above that and try something, you know, further, further down the line, perhaps. We really f- want to focus on performance level outcomes, even patient level outcomes. And, and trying to understand what clinicians are doing differently. Learning is great and, and understanding how knowledge has changed is, is important. Our focus is what are they doing differently based on education? And then that, that kind of, and then goes back around to needs as well. And it's, it's still that focus on what are the needs of that community? And can we take that outcomes, turn it back around and find the gaps and the needs of the next program? You're really kind of diving deep in the methodological approaches that you take to both needs assessments and outcomes evaluation. I think one of the things that's unique uh, for me anyway, in the work that you do is, and you, you kind of touched on it, you know, you do look at things like attitudes, but also beliefs and the way in which beliefs inform behavior and the kinds of practices that clinicians are engaged in. Is that well, let me ask the question this way. You know, what led you to root cause analysis? Because it seems like there's there's clearly a connection there. Yeah, I think so. And and I think what led us to root cause analysis was the understanding of the the problems in certain areas of CME. They're they're oftentimes known. The barriers are known and, and there's a lot of research in multiple therapeutic areas on what the barriers to care are. But what's not often looked at is why. Why do those barriers exist? And if we know what those barriers are, why are we continuing to have these barriers? You know, why, why can't we do anything about them? And I think that's, that's a critical part of any needs assessment is, is, and it's a, it's a question that we always ask when we're trying to start a needs assessment is that, okay, so if you were to know everything there is to know about a certain disease, what, what are some of the still, what are still, still some of the problems here? And, you know, that goes beyond knowledge and it goes it goes to those attitudes. It goes to those systemic barriers, perhaps, that still exist and what education can possibly do about that. I think in a lot of times we think about education as that, okay, well, I'm just imparting knowledge. We're just increasing knowledge. And sometimes that just doesn't do it, especially in in diseases that have been around for a long time. 
we know what there is to know. There's not a lot of new medications perhaps in these areas, but there's still challenges and patients still aren't being treated optimally. What, what are the problems there? And that takes us into the root cause too, because I think I've seen this a lot as this come up in the, the field is asking about what are the root causes of certain things? And, you know, oftentimes in a response, you list, well, here are the root causes. But, but how did you get that? How did you, how do you know what the root causes really are? And, and that's, that's kind of the, the main crux of the root cause analysis and going into, well, how do we really find out what those causes are? Cause it's not easy. And, and it's, it's often hard to pull that out of clinicians and really understand what's, what's really going on. And so how do you do that? I mean, what can you tell us a little bit more about? you know, what a root cause analysis involves and, and how you approach it? Yeah, maybe we should kind of take a step back and talk about some of the history here, because certainly yeah, root right. cause has been around for a long time. It was, I think, originally accredited to the Japanese engineer and inventor, uh, Sakichi Toyota, and, you know, back the turn of the uh, 20th century to uh, the, well, the, the 19th to the 20th century. So thinking about manufacturing issues, thinking about trying to find some of the problems in the manufacturing and engineering process. And then that led to the development of some other similar types of ideas, whether you know, you're talking about the Six Sigma process, you're talking about the, um, the plan, do, check, act process of making sure you know exactly what the problems are and, and address those problems directly. And that goes to the principle of the root cause analysis is that all problems arise from a root cause. And then only solutions can solve those difficult problems. High quality solutions can solve difficult problems. So I think the idea here is to focus less on the end product and more on the how do we get there and, and making sure that we have a very introspective process that will eliminate some of these root issues. So and, and really, the root cause analysis started to be made applicable for the healthcare industry since the 1990s. And then we're starting to get that trickle-down effect here in CME, too. So it has a long tradition, and you hear a few things. You know, you hear about the five whys. Um, you know, you can certainly go go as deep as, as you want to with this, but, but what does that really mean? And there's a few ways to get at this. You can do any kind of inquiry. You know, you can talk to a very similar process as how you, you do any needs assessment, whether you do some some qualitative work maybe to find out some of the issues with people in your target audience. And that might lead to some quantitative work to try to not only see you know, what the real issues are, perhaps, or, or maybe a broader understanding of those real issues, but also prioritize those issues. Because that's often a problem when you're understanding root causes is there's generally not just one cause to a problem. Sometimes they're are a few. And, and so some are more important than others and so are more easily addressed by education than others. So that's, that's a big component of this is to, if I can only address a few of these, which ones should I start with and how do I do that? So in thinking about, you know, the first step, what's the first step? And we like to have some interviews. We want to talk to the people on the ground. We want to talk to those community clinicians, the ones dealing with this issue every day, the ones seeing patients and really ask them, okay, so you have this patient, what are some of the main problems that you see? And again, you know, we think about root cause, you think about five whys, and you say, so I, that's a question we get asked. So, so then do you ask, them, do you really ask someone why five times? And no, you, you don't, because, you know, we're dealing with, with highly professional, skilled people here. And usually by the time you ask the third why, they're, they're basically done with you. So 
that's often a challenge to these interviews is to think about how to really get at some of these problems. So you've mentioned, yeah, so you mentioned interviews, you mentioned, you know, you could do a kind of follow-up survey. I know you also, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you use nominal group technique in that kind of prioritization process. Would you bring that into a kind of root cause analysis? I think you could. I think, it, and it really depends on the, the group. So, you know, for instance, if you have a, a primary care audience or target audience, you need to go maybe a little wider. Primary care is, is very diverse. You need to, to kind of understand it from different points of view, whether it's the hospitalist or your private family medicine practitioner. They're going to have different approaches and, and different issues. But, but yeah, I like to start with interviews, at least understand some of the problem. And then you can then take it to a, a nominal group technique if you want to and understand, okay, if these are the problems, how would you sort these? Or, or what, what do these resonate with you? How important are some of these? What are your top concerns? Things like that that you can do pretty easily in a nominal group technique. Even now, there, there are ways to do that virtually. There is, it's not as hard as it used to be. You don't have to get 10 doctors in the same room anymore and, and really hash out these problems. You can do it asynchronously. Like I say, you can do it virtually. You can do it in, in a in a manner that really makes sense for people's busy schedules. So then once you have that, once you have that priority, sometimes if we have the funding, if we have the time, we can take it up another level and then uh, go to a wider audience. Maybe instead of talking to, you know, having 10 interviews, maybe 15 people in a, in a nominal group technique approach, maybe then we go up to 150, 150 primary care physicians all across the United States or wherever you are, it doesn't matter. And then ask some of the same questions in a different way to see if those still resonate. Does it still ring true? Are they still having the same barriers? And then you're starting to get at not only the what, but what's, what's almost more important sometimes is the why. And uh, you can get a, a lot of the what from, from literature. You can get it from talking to faculty, but it's really hard to get that why in those ways where you've got to talk to those community clinicians. So there's, there's almost like a kind of design thinking element here because those whys, those five whys are kind of layers. And you're bringing a, a methodological layering to the process of kind of uncovering the, the root cause. I want to circle back around to that question of the five whys and the challenges that that kind of presents just in the interview context itself. Obviously, you're not asking why five times, but how do you approach interviews when you're really trying to kind of dig deeper than the surface responses that people typically tend to give in an interview context? Yeah. And in, in, you don't just, I, I think it's, it's a misnomer to just ask why, right? Cause it, you want to, you want to probe and you want to kind of make them understand that you're listening to them and you're wanting to go a little deeper. And I think if you work with them, they're, they'll answer it pretty truly and carefully. There's a reason why they decided to get on the phone with you in the first place is that they're open to having a conversation. And I think. That's the main thing here is that just you're, you're having a conversation and trying to build that. I'm a very introverted guy. I have a hard time with, with interviews. Sometimes before I, I have an interview with a clinician, I have to go take a little walk and come sit down and just kind of get my mind in the right place. And then, but it's having that conversation. So if you ask, okay, so you're having this patient and what, what's a common issue that you might see? And, and then you can start asking questions. You don't have to ask why, but you say, is that, is that typical? Or is this a typical situation that you might get in? What are some of the factors that are problematic for you? What are some of the big challenges you would have with this patient? And 
then you have to listen and then you repeat back. So you said this one, why, why is that an issue? Um, and then I think offering them some possibilities for solutions, you, you can get into that. You don't have to, but sometimes that brings out their attempts to try to work with you on a solution, try to work with you on really getting down to the crux of what the problems are. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills and scaffolding for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche, or niche, if that's how you say it. Doors open January. So there's a kind of lathering approach to the interview process itself. Quite a bit. And you almost have to start out not even getting to that. You start out very big questions. You start, I like to talk about, you know, let's talk about yourself a little bit. You know, what is your practice setting? Tell me about some of the, the patients that you see. Um, say we have patients with, you know, schizophrenia is one that, that I've been doing a, a few things about with root cause analysis um, recently. Because a lot of the challenges are known. The challenges are known, but the how to manage those challenges are not always. And, and there's still quite a bit of controversy on what you do. So so tell me about your practice. Tell me how different it is. And and sometimes we're talking to a private psychiatrist, you know, working in an urban or suburban setting. And sometimes it's I'm talking to someone in out of a VA, or sometimes I'm talking to someone in a correctional facility. And a lot of those challenges are very different, but sometimes they have a very similar cause. Sometimes the systemic challenges are the same. The formulary challenges are very similar. So a lot of it is kind of going away for a bit, finding the individual issues, and then coming back to finding some consensus as well. Oh, that's interesting in terms of that approach. I mean, you, and you talked a little bit about, you know, the interview is a kind of conversation. Oh, but obviously you have to prepare for that conversation, not only in terms of, you know, bringing yourself into that present moment, you talked about, you know, going for a walk and, and kind of readying yourself. What's your approach then to kind of developing the context and the approach for, for the interview itself? Yes. Always have a structured interview guide, at least to know where your next question will be. If you can't think of one on the top of your head or you don't, you don't have the ability to maybe challenge them or or come up with something here, you can at least go to the next question and having some sort of guide to work from. And I usually do have a few questions that I know I'm going to ask every person. I'm going to have a few probes. If they mention something, I know I know they're going to mention it. Um, I'll have a, a probe to remind me to, to really probe in on something specific if they mention something specific. And allowing that flexibility also to completely deviate from that guide. But what that does, it not only helps you in the interview process, it helps you at the end of the day, too. Because when you're getting all of this back, you're getting all this analysis back, there has to be some kind of structure for that when you're reporting it. So having those, at least, I guess, framework bookmarks to say, okay, well, I'm going to put all of this together. I'm going to collate all of these interviews and try to figure that out. But, but here are at least my bookmarks. Here are my framing devices from my uh, interview guide that I can, can at least use as a map to get me to where I want to be at the end of the day. Because you can have all the best conversations. And, you know, if you don't 
do a good job on the reporting and analysis part, well, they're just all in your head. And that doesn't really help anybody. And um, so, so having that framework to go back to is really important. Now let's talk about that reporting and analysis part then. What's your approach to that? You know, you have all these interviews and, and by the way, you know, how many interviews, I know that you've been recently working on some root cause analysis, you know, how many interviews would you typically do and what do you do with that information? Yeah, that's a great question because it depends. So generally based on good research, you should interview until you've reached saturation. So what does that mean, right? What, is it, what does saturation mean? It's, it's when you're starting to hear the same things again, and you're, you realize that if you, you know, you can ask a few more interviews, but you won't get anything new, or you won't get anything that would really help you too much. Generally, I find 10 to 12 per audience is pretty good. You, you know, you might start to think at the end, like, okay, well, I might need a few more, or uh, maybe, maybe I could, I could use a few more, or maybe I've, I've got it after 10 to 12. But generally, um, a lot of PCPs, psychiatrists, you know, when you think about a target audience group like that, we generally find about 10 to 12, like I said, is, is where you're probably going to get decent saturation. If you were in a more rigid group, like you're just interviewing, say, um, surgical oncologists and academic centers, you might need a little fewer. They might be a little bit more uh, homogenous than the primary care or psychiatry group. So it's it's a bit, you know, it's a bit based on uh, experience and 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 that. But I think if you start with 10 and then kind of figure it out from there, that's a good place to start. One other thing that, that goes into understanding how many interviews you need is sometimes on, say, interview six, seven, you start to hear something that you didn't think of before. It didn't come up maybe in your first five. And then, oh, well, I need to ask some more people about this because this is pretty interesting. Or we, we hit on something that I didn't think about. And that's a big part of why you start with interviews. If you knew all the answers, you could just start with a survey and go from there. I know all the answers. I just need to get some data around it. But with root cause analysis, the idea is that you don't know the answers. If you, <laughs> if you knew the answers, you wouldn't have to do it in the first place. So starting with those interviews, talking to people, really figuring out the problems, and then taking that next approach is pretty useful, I think. And it gives you the flexibility to kind of circle back to, do you ever actually circle back to people that you've interviewed you know, if you've interviewed maybe four or five people, you're hearing some new things in pe person six and seven, you want to go back and just kind of check that out with the people that you've already spoken to. Yeah, that would probably be a pretty good idea. No, we don't do that too often. I think it's sometimes hard <laughs> enough uh, scheduling them to begin with. Right. It, it's something that we have done before, even in surveys. It's a little easier. You could just email a survey question to a group of people and you'll get a you know decent response back. But I think something like that could work with an interview, too, is if you develop that rapport is, is hey, this came up. What do you think about this? And at least getting a, an email back. Yeah, you, you might be likely to do that. Interesting. And I, I, I like the kind of emphasis that you place on the don't be afraid to deviate from, you know, your question guide, because you're bringing so much as the researcher, as the interviewer into the kind of process it, itself. And I think some people kind of shy away from that when they're doing kind of qualitative work because they think it has to be rigid and it has to be kind of pro forma, but actually your skill to respond to what people are saying is important. Right. And that only comes with practice. Uh, it just comes with, with knowing that it's okay to just have a conversation, knowing that if you have the recording going on, you can go back and you can, you can see it and, and you don't have to take notes necessarily. 
there's been a lot of advances lately in the immediate transcriptions that, you know, even in like Microsoft Teams or things like that, that you can see as you're talking the, the transcription just being done underneath it. So you don't have to worry about stopping. You don't have to worry about, hey, could you go back and say that again? I didn't catch it. You can just be free in the moment. You can talk. You can have a conversation. And that also, I think, helps on the, the other end, the interviewee. Just it helps that they don't feel like this is an interview as much as it's a conversation. Because I think sometimes you have to you have to make sure that they don't have their guard up too much. Um, that you're not here, you're not their boss, you know, you're not going to be judging them on their uh, approach to something and, and be and being willing to really understand some of the issues. And it's not a test because sometimes clinicians no. do go into even these kinds of interviews, you know, qualities of interviews with the kind of test mentality, like I, I have to say the right thing here. Right. And that's a big problem with surveys too, especially if you're trying to get at attitudes. And some of the, the issues is that, you know, clinicians, people in general, they want to do well. They want to seem like they're doing the best job they can, even if they're not actually able to in, the, in real practice. So being able to really talk about that and not not giving them an out, not letting them just kind of say, well, this is the guideline approach. Like, well, do you do that? Like, how many times do you do that? Do you do that every time uh, or, or do you do that? You know, so so I think, you know, being able to, to really talk person to person about some of the challenges is, is something you can do in an interview that you can't in any other form of research. So you have your guide, you have your flexibility, you have your willingness to deviate, you're in the moment, you collect all this data, and then you talked about using your guide as a as a kind of map, as a framework for the analysis. How do you start that process? It's very, you start with a theme and you usually have those themes laid out in your guide. You know, I'm going to ask about treatment for a little bit. We'll just talk about some of the, the problems with, you know, the, the current treatments, et cetera. And sometimes you use those questions to frame your report, frame your analysis is that you have this big question. And then you just, I, I like to put quotes. I, I really like quotes and having a, maybe a big thesis statement for each theme and then having the quotes to support that. And, and sometimes you only have a few quotes, perhaps if you only went down this road with a few people, but I think that's okay. You can still have a thesis or have some kind of summary statement say, well, you know, of the people we talked to, Three of them thought about this, and, and then you have those three quotes, that, and this is the way that we do it, and and four of them mentioned this as a problem, and you have those quotes, and I think that that flows really nicely, and you can do that in a Word document, you can do it in a PowerPoint, you can kind of put some graphics to it, you can you can do a lot of things that that really make that work. I think some of the challenge in qualitative analysis is that reporting, and how do you how do you do that without making someone read too much? There's a lot of emphasis nowadays on infographics and trying to put summaries together and trying to make executive summaries about something and pictures, no words. It's really hard to do that in qualitative research. So how do you make it interesting enough to to a reader to make them actually read a report? That's, that's a huge problem. It is a huge problem. Yeah, telling the story. Because that's all you're getting. You're getting pieces of a story. And it's your job as the researcher to start putting those threads together and telling that story through quotes. There's some, some great ones that are, that are done in all kinds of qualitative research. Uh, we need the oral histories that are written that really do a good job of putting together a story just with other people's words. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a big challenge and it's hard to do. But when it, when it works out, I think it's great. Yeah, it does. And it, and it, you know, you talked about flexibility and, and deviation that kind of freer 
reporting, you know, really requires the researcher to detach, to read the work, to read the summaries and, and the, the quotes and the themes and all of that, but then to kind of pull back and see the bigger picture and feel, right. feel a sense of freedom and kind of putting that together as a story. I like the way you describe that. Actually, uh, Stephanie Evergreen has a really nice chapter in her book on visualizing data on qualitative with some pretty neat ideas for visualizing. Yeah qualitative but it's it you know it, it's it's always a challenge for sure yeah and i think it's just not anything that we're used to we're, we're always used to well how do we put that on a graph how do we put and there are ways you can you can you can maybe pull out some data and you can maybe put a put a little picture together but it, it is challenging and i i think it's it's an area that's not really talked about very much especially the cme world you know we see Okay, well, I understand why not to use a pie chart. I understand, you know, to choose a line graph over a bar chart. But what do you do with this data? It's, it's more nuanced. It is more nuanced for sure. So let's kind of focus toward the end of our conversation here. How how you see root cause analysis informing education strategy and content? You know, once you have, and I know you've been working on some projects. Once you've gone down this road and identified some root causes, and by the way, when do you know you've Hit the correct root cause, and and then so and then how does it inform the education that's going to grow from that? Yeah, that's a great part. Well, let's start maybe with that last one, um, or you know, how do you know when you've hit the root cause? And I I feel like you may not ever really know when you hit the right one, but you can at least hit a big one. I think if you're if you're listening and you're hearing the same thing come up a few times, you can start to identify some of the root causes and the, the big ones to talk about. Like, you know, we've done one in COPD and one of the root causes we've heard is for, from some clinicians is there's, there's too many medications. You know, I'm a primary care physician. There are too many of them. I don't understand the difference. And, you know, that's definitely, okay, well, I got, I got an education point there. All right. We know what to do. We can, we can start talking about all the ones and why to use one versus another, et cetera. Okay. Then you start being, then it starts getting like, okay, well, we know adherence is a challenge in COPD. Okay. So that's the barrier, but why? And so then it gets to the fact that, all right, let's dive in on it. Okay. So cost is an issue. Okay. That's, that's great. There's not so much you can do in the CME world about cost of medications, but then you get to the fact that, well, it's not really cost as much as it's the patient can't necessarily feel that the medication is working because if they if they take their medication as prescribed they're not necessarily going to get better they're just not going to get worse um so how do you how do you talk to someone about that how do you talk to a patient about that is that you may not notice you know you're taking this medication it might be a little expensive it might be out of your price range that you're comfortable paying and if you're a patient if i'm not getting better if not feeling better well why am i paying this so having those discussions with a patient, uh, talking about some of the problems and talking about, well, you're not, you may not feel better, but you're not going to feel worse and the medication's working and this is what you're going to feel. And, and having those discussions up front may lead to better adherence. And that's, that's something that we could take and we can tailor some education around. We can say, how do you talk to your patient? You make sure you mention these things. This is very important for adherence, things like that. It's, it, you know, taking that next step from identifying that cause. Cause sometimes that's the problem. Sometimes you find a root cause, like, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know what to do. This isn't a CME issue. Sometimes, sometimes this is a, a larger systemic issue that I can't do anything about, but it's good to know still. Right. 
Right. But it's an important, uh, an important recognition, recognition. Right. And so I think you've kind of also addressed the question there of, you know, how root cause analysis can inform approaches to education. Well, for listeners who are kind of interested in root cause analysis and thinking about, you know, if they're providers, how they might use that in their own practice, where would one start? I think you start by talking to people. I think you start by thinking about what are the issues. I think you can develop your own uh, interview guide, you know, frame out some questions. What, what areas do I think are problems and, and start from there and start talking to people in the target audience. You can set, set up a 20 minute appointment. You know, most, most clinicians have 20 minutes perhaps in their day or at the end of their day that they can talk to you. Um, and so you say, I, I just want to talk to some of your challenges that you're having in, in this particular therapeutic area and just just talking. Once you get that, you can take steps, but really you don't you don't get better at it without practice. So just trying it out, having some interviews, talking to people, and then going from there. That's usually a pretty low risk, low cost uh, first step at least. And anything else that we haven't touched on that is important to the practice of root cause analysis in the continuing medical education field? Yeah. So I think this addressed a lot of the needs assessment approach, right? Your formative assessment. So what do you do at the end? And can you use these same techniques to help with your outcomes? And I think you can. I think you can talk about, you can talk about, okay, so, so based off of this education, you know, whether it's the same person you talked to before or not, we, we knew that there were some problems going in and you can kind of tell them, we, you know, we, we were trying to address some of these challenges. Are these applicable to you? You know, what do you think? Do you feel like this was addressed by the education? What do you think we could do differently based on this? Do you feel like you're better equipped to go about some of these challenges? And to be able to link that back to your uh, needs assessment, back to your formative assessment and the root cause analysis and show that, okay, so we, we identified some root causes. We prioritized those. We picked out some educational interventions to address these. And now at the end of the day, did we address them and how well did we do it? And can we do it again more in the future? Or maybe there's a better one that we could address that came out out of this that we can address next time. So I think just continue to think about it as not just one step, but a continuum of greater education and greater assessment and just helping everyone get better as we move through, um, is, is a big piece of the puzzle. You can really pull that thread through from formative to summative with the, the qualitative approach or a root cause yep. analysis approach. And then right back to formative again. Right. Yeah. You got that kind of endless mm-hmm. cycle. Sure. Greg Salinas, thank you for sharing your wisdom on root cause analysis. Absolutely. I love to connect with listeners and hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. If you like the podcast or a particular episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or leave a SpeakPipe voice message on the podcast page of my website. There's a link in the show notes to help you do either or both of these things. Go gently. Go gently.